The scripture reading today is from Genesis and Revelation. You can find it printed on page 8 of your worship folder. A reading from Genesis chapter 4. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be a wanderer and a fugitive. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and named it Enoch after his son Enoch. And now a reading from Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And in the spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven from God. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, we ask now that you meet us here, however we may find ourselves as we walk into this room today. Help us to know that you know everything. You know all of our beauty, you know all of our brokenness, all of the good, all of the bad. You know the kind of contradiction that we are. You know how we get it and don't get it. And your response is to love us always. Your response is always to move towards us, to restore, heal, and renew. It's what you do. And so we are so grateful for that. Help us to believe it, though, with all of our hearts. Help us to believe that this moment has been arranged by you and help us to be present now to your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This may be no surprise to you, but I'm the last person who you would think would ever come to a city and plant a church. 
I still can't believe it, to be honest with you, that my life story has moving to a city and starting a congregation in it. First of all, I'm just shocked I'm a pastor at general. I'm still kind of getting over that. But that I would move to a city because I am from Lakeland, Florida, ladies and gentlemen, Polk County, Florida, small, rural, agricultural. I'm an ag major from the University of Florida. When I moved here in 1996, not the same today, but what the first question a person would ask me when I moved here in 1996, and I'm saying, yeah, I'm going to start a church. You know, all they heard was, you're going to start a cult. And, um, and they would ask me, where did you go to school? And I would say, University of Florida. And they would go, what was your major? Agriculture. <laughs> um, you know, just telling people you're an ag major when you're trying to start a church in San Francisco in 1996 was just like conversation buzzkill. Um, and so, yeah. And then I had this moment. I was a minister. I was working with college students at the University of Tennessee. 1992. We were going to go to New York City. I was scared to death. Um, I was scared of cities. Cities bad. Cities always bad. First thing that comes up for me. Um, but I, I had fallen in love with working on the campus because the campus was filled with diversity and questions and antagonism towards Christian faith or, or just, you know, everybody had their books open still. Not that in the suburbs nobody has their books open, but it just didn't, I just wasn't attracted to doing anything but campus ministry, but I didn't want to work with 18 to 21-year-olds for the rest of my life and answer questions about premarital sex, all right? There's more to ministry than that. So, it's not in the notes. So, um, so, but it was on the Weehawken Ferry. Raise your hand if you know what the Weehawken Ferry is. None of you. All right. Okay. Thank you, Elizabeth Marshman. All right. I was on the Weehawken Ferry with students, and I looked at the skyline of New York City. And so for some of you, you have these moments all the time. I've had about five of them in my life, okay? We're all different. I had one of my Pentecostal charismatic moments where I felt the presence of God and God saying to me, this is where you're going next. And I sat down and I cried. And my students thought I'd lost my mind because I'd been struggling. What will be next? And then it dawned on me, everything I loved about the campus, it's in the city as well, in different scale and in different ways. The problem is, not everybody gets that experience. And like me, you bring into it your understandings of the city. And often when you move here, if you're not from a city, you have a, you have a watch out. Or maybe it's the exact opposite. Maybe when you moved to the city, it wasn't, city's bad, can't believe I have to live here, or this is going to be a challenge, but it was rather, now I can sin all I want to. <laughs> now I can use this city to be my personal playground. All these things available to me now that were not before. You see, the city is challenging. And unless we become intentional about how we relate and understand to the city, we'll develop attitudes and we'll develop practices in our life that aren't for the city's good or for our soul's good. Make sense? Because cities aren't neutral. 
They come at you. They challenge you. They push on you. And so in this very first sermon, let's look at the first city and the last city. Because the first city is found in Genesis 4. The story of Cain and Abel. And so the first point I want as we look at the story of Cain and Abel is going to be a little surprising to you because I'm calling it the gift of the city. You're like, really? You're going to get the gift of the city out of the Cain and Abel story. I'm here for this. How will that take place? Because you already know, right? The story of Cain and Abel is right up here just a second ago. This is what this sermon looks like. Point one, Cain's bad. Point two, Abel's, Abel's good. Point three, be like Abel, don't be like Cain. Right? That's what that is. Except when you just boil it down to some kind of a moralistic story, right, it kind of becomes absurd. You know, be like Abel, die. <laughs> be like Cain, prosper. Because that's what goes on to happen. If anything, this story is problematic. Because you had the person who is the murderer who goes on to do pretty darn good. In verse 15 in chapter 4, he gets God as his bodyguard for the rest of his life. I'm going to put a mark on you. Nobody could touch you. Verse 17, he makes love to his wife. They have a son, and they name him Enoch. And then they also start the first city and name the city after their son. Things are going pretty good, actually, for Cain. Not too shabby. And, you know, if you read on, you're going to see that Cain was, in some ways, the father of technology and the father of livestock development and farming and all these things. He cultivated civilization in this first city and was apparently very successful. What's going on? Not too shabby for a murderous man who did not think he was his brother's keeper. But maybe the point of the story isn't about Cain, but about the city as a place of God's mercy. Of God's mercy. That while Cain will not build the city of God very well, God will in the midst of the brokenness. Very simply, God is good to Cain when Cain did not deserve it. And that is good news for people like you and me. That is good news for all of us who have a little cane running through our system, who left to ourselves do develop civilizations of violence and civilizations of exclusion and corruption. I mean, we aren't all Ivan the Terrible, but it's not for lack of talent. That's all I'm saying. I like to think of it the way that Brian Stevenson talks about it. And he says this, this is one of the things he says all the time, <clears throat> but you'll also hear it in the movie Just Mercy, which every single one of you should go see. When he says, I've come to believe that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Listen to that again. I've come to believe that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. I don't think that if someone tells a lie, they're just a liar. I don't think if you take something, you're just a thief. I don't think even if you kill someone, that you're not just a killer. And justice requires, listen, and justice requires that we understand the other things that you are. All of this comes from his robust Christian faith. 
And so point one is, left to ourselves, yeah, we build cities of injustice, of oppression and inequality, but God does not leave us to ourselves. And God is a city builder because cities are a gift under the mercy of God. That cities are an arena where the mercy of God is displayed because cities are filled with people. It's pretty simple. Cities are filled with people. People are loved by God. Therefore, God loves the city. And if you love what God loves, you'll love the city and all its brokenness and fragmentation. But on the outset, God is a city builder. And as with Cain, we can expect God to be at work in cities, to be places of refuge as cities are for those who don't have enough, for those who are poor, for those who are marginalized, for those on the edges. We can expect cities also to be places of innovation and cities to be places of spiritual seeking and spiritual questioning and places of deep brokenness. But the city is a reminder of God's great mercy and grace making the city an amazing, generous gift of a gracious God. See how I did that? The gift of the city in the first city is that it was filled with the mercy of God. The second thing is the goal of the city. Now we fast forward to Revelation 21 and 2, 22, which you read about, um, which was read just a few moments ago. John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Revelation is essentially a critique of the Roman Empire and thus all empires, a prophetic critique of empire. In all sorts of symbols, and of course, I'm not going to give you the whole hermeneutic of Revelation in the sermon because it'll take a little while. But as it comes to a close, as it comes to a close, it says this is, this is where we're headed. This is where we're headed, a city, a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem. This is kind of the answer to the prayer, may your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Because the arrival of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, is on its way. So the vision of John in Revelation is not escapist. That the end game for the Christian life is to be evacuated from this place. To be taken away. But rather heaven and earth coming together. In a new physical reality altogether. This is a picture of what the world looks like when God gets it exactly the way God wants it. A city filled with people, but also, importantly, filled with gardens, filled with with clean water and flourishing trees. A glorious garden city where everyone has enough, where no one is excluded where every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, where diversity is celebrated and not feared. And there's no temple because the presence of God is everywhere and accessible and experienced by everyone. See, it's this version that we are to call to live into. Not a racist, classist, sexist Christianity of the colonizers built on hoarding resources and shaming the other. No. The heavenly vision is going to be radiating and reflecting God's own 
abundance. This is what John paints for us, this picture. John elsewhere will talk about the dimensions of the New Jerusalem, and it's roughly the size of the Roman Empire. Pretty smart, John, the way you work that in. Because his vision is an alternative to the oppression and inequality of empire. And so John, and you know what John's doing? He's drawing on Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel the prophet, who has a vision about the rebuilding of the temple, And in this temple, a little rivulet of water starts to trickle out of it. And it starts to flow south to the arid desert. And so Ezekiel in the vision follows the water. And as he follows the water, the water comes up to his ankles, then to his knees. And suddenly he's caught up in in, in water he has to swim in. And and, And this water immediately comes forth into the desert and brings about Dry soil going to fertile soil. And things begin to spring up, trees that we can be healed from them, from the leaves of these trees that are medicinally beautiful, and, and, and vegetation and flourishing. And every, in other words, everything that was dead comes alive. That's the vision of Ezekiel, that this is what God is about, bringing life out of death bringing flourishing and thriving out of death. The future is not oppression. The future is not inequality. The future is not violence. Do you believe a word of what I've just said? We must, as hard as it is. Because the cynicism... And the understandable trauma and wounds that so many of us have experienced. We read something like this and we go, I wish it were true. I hope it's true. God, I hope it's true. This past week, I had the opportunity to be, I was invited by Jim Wallace of Sojourners to be a part of this thing called the Faith Roundtable. And we spent three days on the border in Tijuana. Well, actually, we spent one full day in Tijuana and then a day before and after both preparing and then kind of processing. We met heroic churches on the other side of the border who are redirecting their entire church to make room for refugees that have walked as far away as El Salvador, Guatemala, one from Brazil. I don't know how you walk from Brazil to Tijuana, but apparently it's possible with children. Unbelievable, the stories we, we, we heard. And at the end of our time, it was on Tuesday afternoon, it was around five o'clock, and we were gathering out there where the wall goes into, by the way, there is a wall already there, just, to, just so you know. The wall goes into the water itself, and it's a place where historically Americans and Mexicans would gather and share food together. And over the years, as things got complicated and decisions were made, walls began to be put up. For the longest time, the way that you could embrace one another is you could, you could reach through the wall and, can, and continue to have physical contact, and now all you can do is like a little pinky shake. We actually had a ceremony where we did the pinky shake with one another. But at the end of our worship service, what was happening is, is all of our phones 
were blowing up. And mind you, in this faith roundtable, there's a lot of people in this group from Washington, D.C., who work as lobbyists in various Christian organizations. They're very connected to people in the Hill. And the phones were blowing up because the bombs were blowing up in Iran. Or excuse me, in Iraq. And nobody knew what was going to happen at this stage, whether it would escalate, de-escalate, etc. We just know that missiles had been fired. And we were invited after a whole day of this, and now this knowledge, I'm doing this because that's where my phone is usually, to then take communion, be anointed with oil, and then walk up to the wall and pray. And by the time we'd gotten to this spot in the day with all of the heaviness that we'd experienced, I walked up to the wall, and all of us were crying. Tears were abundant. And I didn't know what to pray except God, save us from ourselves. Save us from ourselves. And in the mercy of God, I came back on Wednesday and started to prepare a sermon. And thankfully, it took me to Revelation 21 and 22 and challenged me in my cynicism and my despair that the future is God's shalom, thriving, flourishing for everyone. And I'm trying to believe that alongside you. And so maybe this sermon is partly just a pushback to whatever cynicism you may have as understandable as it is to say God is telling us, and maybe God right this minute has ordained this moment to love you by making sure you're in a room where you're hearing that the future is life. The future is life. And lastly, therefore, we have work to do. The gift of the city, the goal of the city, and now the calling of the city is to bring this about now. In some ways, in Christian theology, the resurrection of Jesus is actually the birth of the new Jerusalem in the midst of the old. It's the birth of the new creation in the midst of the old. And we're called to plant, as N.T. Wright likes to say, resurrection flags everywhere we go. And to live our lives with, first of all, hope, because as Brian Stevenson says, hopelessness is the enemy of justice. With hope, but also with harmony. And I just want to make the point, because I don't have time, I'm out just about to, to go deeply into this, but maybe we can return to it, because I want you to notice that what's taking place in the passage is not just a city filled with concrete, but a city filled with gardens. That the New Jerusalem vision is not where people and planet are in opposition to one another, or planet is something to be used or conquered, but they work in harmony with one another. New Jerusalem brings well-being to both people and planet. Because as the passage says earlier in Revelation 21, see, I am making all things new. In the Spirit of God, she tells John, I am making it all new, people and planet, all flourishing. That's what I'm about. 
So I'm asking you to believe today a couple of things. I'm asking you to believe that God is merciful to you and to human beings. Maybe that's the first step. The first step is to say, I have not been disqualified from being a part of what God is doing in this world because God is merciful, always. His love, his mercy is everlasting. So maybe that's the first step. Or maybe it's then the second step is to say, I'm asking you to believe God is going to bring our messy, war-torn world to a place of beauty and equality. I'm asking you to do that. And I'm asking you to see yourself as called to participate with God now in implementing this vision. To live a faithful, in a faithful, direct trajectory toward the new Jerusalem. It's a big ask I'm asking of you. But it's a glorious ask. And it's the only ask that is big enough for the greatness of your souls. So what needs to change for you? What needs to be rearranged in your life? Only you can answer that question. To be a part of the new Jerusalem that God is building. But I can tell you what the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Revelation 21, another part of it. And let everyone who hears say, Come. And let everyone who is thirsty, Come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. Let's all drink it together. Gracious God, thank you that you give us this vision because we need it badly. Thank you that you didn't give up on Cain and you don't give up on us because you are a God of grace and love and mercy. And even though we left our own designs create civilizations of vengeance, civilizations that create cycles of violence, you come to us in Jesus and you break those cycles of violence. And when we tried to kill you, you forgave us as you hung on that cross. Upending the predictable cycle of violence and turning it into grace, love, and forgiveness. Help us to be inspired and filled with that heavenly vision as we seek to bring about your city, the new city, in the midst of the old. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.